the rest of you, I'm glad you're here. I hope you got something to write with and write on, whether that's a notepad or your phone and a little note, because um, we're going to do a little exercise here. I'm just looking around to make sure everybody's good to go. Pillar journals for sale. The plug. Everybody's, most everybody has a cell phone in their pocket that they can pull out and start a note. Because I'd really encourage you to participate if you're sitting in the room and you're here with us, no matter how old you are, whether you're in the youth group or, or not. I'm not looking at you guys or anything. I'm just generally speaking in this direction. Because <clears throat> I'm going to ask you at the top of this piece of paper or this note that you've started, write these words. The ideal church leader is. The ideal church leader is. And then skip down a little bit and write the words. The ideal church leader can. And then skip down just a little bit more for the last time and write, the ideal church leader never. The ideal church leader is, the ideal church leader can, the ideal church leader never. And if you're not writing down, I'm assuming that you just don't want to participate in my exercise. I don't want, I try not to get my feelings hurt, but, but I... I I will say I'm a little bit hurt if you're not participating, because it's, it's really for your, for your benefit as well. So, not using your Bible, not using Google, not using your neighbor, take the next few moments to fill in your answers to these prompts. It can be based on your experience, previous church leaders, current church leaders, the Bible, just write down some ideas in one to two word phrases. For example, the ideal church leader is loving. The ideal church leader can handle conflict well. The ideal church leader never talks behind someone's back. You get the picture. All right, so just take a few moments. Those are, those are examples. They might be your answers, perhaps. So just take a few moments. Should have had the Jeopardy theme music or something going in the background. There are no wrong answers. There are no right answers. There's just your answers. According to Mike, there are wrong answers. So you might want to put that down on what a church leader never does. <clears throat> the ideal church leader is they can. They never. see so much participation. Maybe because I've guilted you into it. <clears throat> the ideal church never guilts people into participating in exercises in church. Write it down.
you just get like two or three for each one, that's good. Or one, I mean, if you're struggling. Just think about what, what do you want an ideal church leader, somebody that's leading you, what do you want them to be able to do? What do you want their character to be like? What don't you want them to do? You probably don't want them to teach heresy or false teachings from the pulpit. You probably don't want them to embezzle money. You probably don't want them to... I mean, there's a long list of things you probably never want a church leader to do. And when you got a few written down, just say amen. I'd say that's a majority. Okay, you can keep writing if you want, but just hold on to that. So why do we do this little exercise? <clears throat> because, well, a couple of different reasons. One is, sometimes we have ideas in our minds of what a leader in church is supposed to be that doesn't necessarily line up or coincide with what the Bible teaches about a leader. I bet, generally speaking, the things that you all just wrote down there's probably a lot of overlap between what's on your paper and what we're going to read in 1 Timothy chapter 3. But I'd like to use, I'd like you to use your list as a sort of guide for today's text. To do a little comparing and contrasting and going, okay, yeah, I can see how this thing from the Bible fits into what I wrote down in this category. Take note of those things, but also pay close attention to the things that are on your list that aren't mentioned at all. In the scriptures. It's not to say that it's off limits of what you would want in your leader, but I think we just need to be careful with what we what our expectations are. Now, this isn't the only list. We're in First Timothy chapter three. It's not the only list in Scripture describing what a what a church leader should be. There's also one in Titus, and there's uh, some stuff in First First Peter. But this is the most comprehensive list that we're about to go through. And I'd say that we should begin to recognize that we sometimes bring biases, we bring our predetermined definitions into our reading of the Bible. This is just an easy way to be able to identify that. We all have predispositions, our experience, our life, things that have happened to us influence how we think about certain things, including the Bible. And so this is an exercise also for us to see how we sometimes carry those things into our interpretation or even exclude the Bible from what we want to see in people and particularly in leaders. And since this passage is pretty straightforward, there's not a lot of, well, what exactly do you mean by that? I think it's a good way for us to be able to walk through that together. So we're going to read the text together. We're going to read 1 Timothy chapter 3, if you have a Bible or a Bible app or something It'll be on the screen as well, but 1 Timothy chapter 3 is what it says. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may be, become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. 
And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that, if I delay, you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the fact that you have clearly outlined for us things that you seek, you desire, you expect of those who you call to lead your church, your bride. This is an important topic, Lord. It's, it's no, I, I don't think, Lord, there's a, a greater responsibility in the kingdom of God besides making you known than to shepherd your flock. God, we are under shepherds, under the control and authority and leadership of you, Jesus. You are the head of the church. We just want to walk in submission to that. We want to do so, though, in a way that is pleasing to you. God, knowing that there is no perfect leader, there's no perfect church, but there are things that we ought to strive for and grow in and mature in. And so help us to do that and help us to identify the things this morning that we can each take from this context. We ask for your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so as we read through the passage, I think something hopefully may have stood out to you in terms of these qualifications. And they are qualifications, that's what Paul says. In this list, would you say there are a bunch of skills and abilities listed? Not really, right? That's because according to the Bible, leadership is less about competence and more about character. I think we can see from this passage, as well as Titus, we are going to jump a little bit back and forth in a little while. So Titus is like a few pages um, further down in, in, the, in the New Testament. We're not there yet. But between these two passages, around 90% of the qualifications listed are focused on a person's character. 90%, that's a lot. Wouldn't you agree? I wonder why that is. I mean, shouldn't a leader be like the very best at what they do? The very best preacher, the very best teacher, the very best manager of people, the best vision caster. These things matter, right? You want somebody who knows what they're doing. But character matters most. There's a book that we use in our leadership development cohort. It's called Gospel Eldership. Fantastic book. And that author has this to say. While godly character is the primary criteria for leadership, it's not the only criteria. There are two other areas that matter. Competence and compatibility. Now, I'm not going to go deep into these two categories, only to say that competence comes in the form of spiritual maturity and being able to handle the word of God well. And compatibility has to do with how that person serves in the local context of where they're, where they're located. Are they able to serve in unity with the local church body that they're a part of? So we have character, we have competence, and we have compatibility. 
So where, where do we go from here with this text? So this, basically just a list. What are we going to do with that? I'm, I'm going to do something. I'm, gonna, I'm basically going to zoom out to the 30,000-foot level, cover a few basic overview type things, and then we're going to look a little bit closer at these things. So Paul has in mind two leaders that he is addressing, two positions or offices in the Bible, and what are those two that we're talking about here? Overseer and deacon. Um, we'll also use the word elder. That'll come into um, into play here shortly. So basically, elder, overseer, they're addressed in verses 1 through 7. You can see that, right? And deacons are addressed in verses 8 through 13. Now, some of your, your translations may list a different word there for elder. For example, the ESV says overseer. The King James says bishop. And other translations use the word elder. So why is this? Does anybody know why this is? I know somebody knows. Don't be scared. What do you think the logical reason is for them to use these three different words to describe the same thing? They all essentially mean the same thing. They're interchangeable. The Bible uses See, the original languages in the Bible are confusing for us because there are lots of different words for the same thing. In English, we... we don't tend to do that. We have one word that means this. Sometimes there's exceptions, but generally speaking, elder, overseer, bishop are used interchangeably in the New Testament. And so don't get too worked up over the fact that there are different words being used here. They all mean the same thing, which is what we will prominently call elder. It's the most consistent throughout the New Testament. It's the label that we use here. The church is led by these men. Elders, right? Serve, led by elders, served by deacons. That's kind of the language we use in our membership class. But the church is led by these men, and I use that word on purpose because it ties into the question that was asked last week about women being elders in the church. So I think we see from this letter that Paul has authority as kind of the, the crux of what he's talking about. Authority matters to him, and authority matters to God. And while he was definitely addressing in this letter a specific issue in a particular city, where was this city? Does anybody remember? It's in Ephesus. The letter to the Ephesians, right? That, that whole area right there. So this is a letter to who? Timothy, who's in Ephesus, right? So there's a specific context, but the idea of leadership of the church and authority is also in view here. And, and I think this is derived from and builds on the idea of leadership within the context of a biblical marriage and a biblical home modeled after God's design for the family. We mentioned last week that this position of what we'll call male leadership in the home and in the church, it's becoming increasingly less popular in today's culture and sought after. And there are a lot of reasons for that, not the least of which has to do with this curse that was levied against women all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. If you don't know that, look it up. Genesis 3, 16 has to do with the curse on Eve and her desire to be over her husband. Like there's this flipping around of authority from Genesis chapter 3 as a part of the curse of sin entering in. So there's this automatic flipping of 
God's design for authority and leadership within the marriage and with the home. So Genesis 3.16, you can look it up. However, if God is who he says he is, the creator, ruler of all creation, then he has the authority, he's got the privilege, the right to determine how his creation should live. And one of the principles he has established is the roles and responsibilities within the home and within the church. And we do well to seek out these God-given roles and responsibilities that he's laid out for us in his word, right? I would say so. Uh, I just wanted to spend a little bit of extra time laying out some more context to the things that we're talking about here, because I think they're important. Uh, They're important to God, and so they should be important to us as well. And also, because it's, it's something that the world today has no interest in pursuing at all. Whatsoever. In fact, I would say it's the opposite, right? The primary responsibility, this is what I'll end on with this. The primary responsibility for teaching and authority in the church rests with the men of God that he has called to appoint and lead his church. And primary is also a word I use on purpose, intentionally. Because other non-elder men and women in general have the giftings and the ability and the space in this church to lead and to teach. I hope it makes sense as we desire to honor God in how we employ leaders in the church here at Pillar. If you have more questions about that, please feel free to text them in. There is a number on the screen if you're like, I just don't get it, I don't understand, I don't agree. And that's the thing. There's things that, that we might say up here that you don't agree with. Especially when we get into the, the, some of the qualifications. You're like, no, I don't, I don't think that's what that says. And that's going to be exciting. because The word of God is, it, we're not robots here, right? We, like I said, we all bring something to the text. Our experience, how we were raised, church hurt, these kinds of things. But while um, I'm on the topic, let me just go ahead and tackle the language surrounding qualifications for deacons. Because if you're reading the ESV or similar translations, it seems that deacons also are limited in the position being for men only. Let's look at uh, 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 12. Is that up there? Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. This is not the right translation. This is not ESV. Let me read ESV. Oh, it is. My bad. Yes, it is. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. We can just leave that there. Leave that right there. So in my view, and in the view of this church, how you translate verse 11... And how you take into consideration all the other scriptures that talk about this topic. Women are included in the role of deacon in the church. Now you're like, how do I get there? I'm looking at verse 11. It says their their wives likewise must be dignified. So think about last week, the, the verses that Mike shared. He shared a lot of verses that talked about women in leadership roles, all from the Old Testament all the way up into the New Testament, New Testament including examples of women being deacons in the church. Um, Romans 16.1 is, uh, is an example of that. Who was the name of the deacon listed there in, in Romans 16.11 or 
Phoebe is, a, is the name of a woman there gift, um, serving as a deacon. But I think equally, we take all of the scriptures as a whole to inform our decision. We don't just pick and choose verses and try to make it say what we want it to say. We take all of the counsel of God together. So all of those scriptures, including Romans 16, 1, and then specifically looking at verse 11 and how we translate that, we should build our understanding. So it says, their wives likewise. Right? It says that in verse 11. Now take into consideration Paul's writings and everything we just talked about. This can also be translated, and I would argue better translated, as women likewise. Women likewise must be. Not to mention the fact that the qualifications that follow are almost identical to the, the qualifications that were listed for deacons. Right? No, for deacons. Deacons, verse 8. Dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy, but dishonest gain. Now look at verse 11. Dignified, not slanders, sober-minded, faithful in all things. Those are pretty similar, right? Why would he repeat the qualifications if he's addressing deacons? He wouldn't. And why would there be qualifications for deacons' wives and not for elders' wives? That's the one that always gets me. Like, if you're going to have some qualifications for somebody, you would think it would be the elders' wives that have qualifications, not, not deacons' wives. Do you, do you see what I'm saying here? Now, you don't have to agree with us. Because I know there's a lot of people that read that and go, no, that's translated exactly right. It's only men. And that's okay. But this is our understanding of the passage. And we have a few women deacons in our church here. And we have a few more in, in the process of becoming deacons. One last comment on leaders in general. We see, um, and if you have questions about that, again, text them in. You know, that's, that's, what, that's why we have that number up there. The scriptures teach, again, 30,000 foot view, a plurality of elders as a standard. N nowhere in the Bible does it have one dude calling all the shots over the church. It just does not exist. And I'm so glad that it does because it provides accountability, variety of leadership styles. Could you imagine if just Mike was up here every week? <laughs> Could you imagine if it was just me up here every week? Like that that's we share the load. It's a, a plurality of co-equal elders. Right? Right now there's only two of us. By God's grace, there's people being brought into the fold that we might see two or three more people coming into that position. But that's always gonna be our desire and goal. In fact, one of the one of the the things that makes us a church in the eyes of our project is that we have and maintain a plurality of elders. Like the moment that we fall out of that in the eyes of the Praetorian project, it's like there's a problem here because you just got one guy calling all the shots and that's not biblical. That's not the way that this works. Okay, so all of that is like this 30,000 foot view and I just I wanted to kind of just revisit some of the things from last week in terms of what we see as leadership within the church, and then we have these categories now of elder and deacon, and, and that process that we just walked through was necessary, I think, and it was by design, because we're going to quickly walk through these, these qualifications, and I think you're going to see there's not a ton of clarification 
required for a lot of things that are listed here. You'd be like, okay, yeah, that's that's what that means. That's what that means. So, um, and I, I, I bet if we were to take a little quiz, which we won't, if I were to just to list the qualifications, every one of you here would be able to generally scratch out what you think that means. It would be pretty accurate. What does it mean to be not greedy for dishonest gain? I think you'd be able to come up with a good definition for that. Would you agree? Okay, you're smart people. Amen. You're, you're welcome. <laughs> okay, so what I have here in front of me is none of your business. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so there's a book that was written by Clint Clifton. Some of you know him. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's called Thresholds. It's, it's about church planting and what it looks like for somebody to build a team and begin a church. And he's got this section that walks through the qualifications for, um, for an elder, for a pastor, for an overseer. All those words again are the same. Between 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, does anybody know how many qualifications there are total? Take a guess. Don't go crazy. 27. Okay, you said 25, you said 27, there's 26. That's pretty good. 26 qualifications between this chapter and Titus 1. And we're going to walk through them, and it's going to be quick, I promise you. But I just wanted to let you know that this is coming from both of those. So if you're going down 1 Timothy 3, you're like, that's not there. Then flip over like three pages and look in Titus 1, and it'll be there. Make sense? Very good. First one is above reproach. Above reproach. That means that no one could bring a credible claim against the elder... And that he is not given to ungodly attitudes and actions that could discredit his Christian testimony. The word reproach means disapproval, discredit, or disgrace. Like So above those things. right? Not perfection, but a credible claim could not be brought against them. Above reproach. I was about to say any questions, but we're not doing that. If you've got questions, text them in. I am going to walk through them. Though. Okay, husband of one wife. This qualification has sparked a great deal of debate in the church. Primarily because the meaning of the phrase is uncertain. This is one of those things where we may disagree, and that's okay. The phrase could be a reference to polygamy, not married to more than one woman at a time. It could be fidelity, faithful to the woman he's married to currently. Or exclusivity, only one marriage to one woman, period. Now, most churches today interpret this qualification as fidelity in the current marriage. A pastor must love his wife exclusively with his thoughts, attitudes, and actions. So if we subscribed to the exclusivity translation idea, only one marriage to one woman, who would that exclude from becoming an elder? Somebody who was divorced, right? And some people... Some great, awesome, loving Christian people subscribe to that. They say, no, this is, this, is, this is what that means. It means you cannot have ever been divorced. Well, in this church, our understanding is that the, the, the reality of that phrase responds, or corresponds more with the idea of fidelity, faithful to the woman who he's currently married to. The, the word actually translated is one woman man, right? And, and I think... Also, the idea of excluding an entire category of people from leadership um, is not really necessarily in line with the rest of the teachings of God. There's a lot of grace 
for those kinds of things. Um, having said that, if somebody got divorced like last year and is still working through that, then there's probably going to be a, a, a period of time, an observation that needs to be in place. But people recover, they are redeemed, and they move forward with life, right? Don't they? Yep. I hope so. I hope you think that. I hope you believe that. Okay, husband and one wife. Next is from Titus. It's believing children. Believing children is what it says. Commonly interpreted one of two ways. An elder is disqualified from formal pastoral church ministry if his son or daughter turns away from Christ. Or, two, an elder is not qualified for formal pastor church ministry if his children are lawless and unruly. A pastor's first flock in proving, proving ground is his family. Now, there's not a person in here who can give sole responsibility to their salvation to any human being. Period. Right? I mean, there's somebody that discipled you and shared with you and loved you. But the Holy Spirit is someone that brings new life and transformation. So how could you hold somebody responsible for their children and their salvation and be a qualification for leadership? It doesn't make sense. The idea of the phrase there is that their, their children need to be respectful, not unruly or crazy or just wild, right? Sober-minded means an elder possesses wisdom and keeps his mind from extreme judgments or thoughts. It is self-awareness and self-control in his thought life. Not arrogant means an elder has a proper view of himself, awareness of his own weaknesses and shortcomings, and a willingness to communicate about them humbly. A pastor must willingly admit to his mistakes and repent of sinful attitudes and actions. Not quick-tempered. Do I have to explain that one? Self-controlled, manages his words and actions well. Man of God controls his physical desires and bring them, brings them under discipline. Respectable, attitudes and actions are worthy of admiration. Hospitable, means that an elder cares about others, invites them into his home and his life in such a way that people enjoy being with him and at, ease, at ease in his company. Lover of good. He gives his thoughts to things that are true and noble and right, pure and admirable. That's out of uh, Philippians 4. Upright means an elder must have an impeccable character so that he has sets a good example to the flock. Holy. What does the word holy actually mean? Anybody know? Set apart. Good job, Levi. <clears throat> and whoever said that over here. Yeah, an elder must live a life of distinction and godliness in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Disciplined means an elder has command over his body, his mind, and his speech. Holding firm to the word of God. So the next four have to do with the word of God and teaching and understanding. So holding firm to the word of God means that an elder must trust and proclaim the word against immense pressure to equivocate, concede, and exchange the clear teaching of scripture in order to placate worldly men. In other words, you stand on this regardless of what people think or say or do. That's holding firm to the word. Able to give sound instruction, also from Titus, means that an elder is empowered or endowed by God with the ability to understand God's word and wisdom to discern and explain to others what it means. Also, out of Titus, able to refute bad instruction. 
Man, you got to know what you're doing. You've got to be able to come against other people who are speaking against this Bible and able to instruct them otherwise. Now we're back in Timothy, able to teach. This means that an elder should possess the capacity to teach the Word of God with a winsome, accurate, and persuasive manner. Not a drunkard. I think we all got that one right. Not violent, but gentle. He's kind and calm and peaceable. Not quarrelsome. Seeks peace rather than controversy. If you have somebody up here that's just constantly stirring the pot, probably not a good thing. Not a lover of money. Means that an elder cannot love money more than he loves God. Not greedy, but generous. Good manager of the household means that an elder's home generally runs smoothly, that his wife and children are well taken care of. A man who is unable to manage his own household affairs is unfit for pastoral ministry. <coughs> Keep children submissive means that, a child, that an elder's children must follow his leadership as he submits to the leadership of Christ. They're not perfect, but they should be respectable and submissive to authority. Not a new convert means they shouldn't be a new Christian. Many fall away from the faith. There are many false converts. The one who seeks the office of elder should have the proven record in the faithfulness. And then lastly, well thought of by outsiders. This is one of the coolest ones, I think, because man, we can think the world of somebody, a leader in the church. And then you go out to the workplace, or you go out to the neighborhood, and you hear a completely different story. And you're like, what's happening? I thought this person was this. And Mike shared, I think, a while ago about one of our processes for bringing elders into actually the office of elder is we, we sit down with one of their non-believing co-workers and talk to them. We go, hey, this person is pursuing church leadership. Does that surprise you that they're a Christian? <laughs> Does this surprise you that they're, they're, they're looking to be a leader in the church? Because that's a qualification, that they're well thought of by outsiders. I told you it's going to be quick because most of that Pretty understandable for us, I think. Let's look briefly at deacons, because there's only two really that stand out. The rest of them would fall into one of those two categories. The two that stand out are verses 9 and 10. So let's look at verses 9 and 10. It says, hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. What does that mean? It means that deacons must understand the Christian doctrine and obey it with a clear conscience that they're... Decisions are based on the Word of God, and that their decisions are backed up with the Word of God, and they live godly lives. That's holding the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. They own it. They know the Christian doctrine, and they live it out. And you can see it in their actions and their decisions. Number 10, or number 10, verse 10, says, And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons, if they prove themselves Blameless. Quite simply put, they should already be doing the work of a deacon before they're ever considered for a deacon. They're proving themselves by serving selflessly, by seeking unity within the church. They're already doing it. They're proving themselves. Those are the two that kind of stand out as, like, well, what exactly does that mean? The rest of them are self-explanatory. But when you really consider... This long list of 26 that we just walked through, something should stand out to you. One commentator says this, 
What's remarkable about this list, what's remarkable about this list is how unremarkable it is. In other words, besides the ability to teach, every one of these character traits must be found in church leaders as well as everybody else. Every other believer. Now, that's not dis- to discount what leaders are called to do. It's, it's extremely important that elders um, are called to be above reproach and model lives of distinction and all these things that are here. And they will give an account one day before God of how they did that and how they shepherded the flock. It's a weighty thing. But look over that list again. Is there any character-based quality or attribute that you yourself, as a Christian, should not strive to be growing and maturing in. Look at the list. Anything, anything there? You're like, nope, that's not me. I'm okay. I'm good to be greedy for dishonest gain. <laughs> Text it in if you're like, I don't think I should have to be X. I would love to love to hear your answer on that. Because what is remarkable about this list is how unremarkable it is. Having said that, then, here's our takeaway for today. Examine the list and examine your heart and compare current elders and deacons included. Which of these areas specifically do you need to mature in? Are you short-tempered? Do you struggle with the idea of money? Whatever it happens to be, find one. Start with one. Because if you're like me, there's a bunch on there that you're like, I could probably improve in that. Find one. Now, what practical step are you going to take this week in order to mature and grow in this area? There's something, if you're if you're really pursuing growth and maturity in this area right now as you bring it before the Lord... And you're going, Lord, this, this one, <laughs> this one's me. What can I do this week that will help me to improve? It doesn't mean overnight you've got it licked. That's not, that's not how this works. But there's a step that you take in maturing and growing. And then I would encourage you to write that down and share it with somebody that you trust that can hold you accountable to grow in that area. You've heard me say it before, and I'll continue to say it. I think one of the things, one of the most significant things that we are missing in the church today is accountability. We preach a great sermon. Well, we preach sermons. (laughs) We offer information and application in our small groups. We talk about all these great things, and then we all go away, and we come back next time and assume that we all did what we said we were going to do. With very little accountability. And again, if you're like me, your heart is prone to wander. Life is busy. There are all kinds of things competing for our attention. Where growing in godliness moves down the list. And having an accountability partner, if you will, man, that's huge. I'd also encourage you, to look at your original list. I made a big deal about it, writing down that list. Look at that list and compare it to Paul's list and see what lines up. There may be things that you wrote down that aren't verbatim to this list, but you can say, I think that would fall in this 
category. See where you overlap and see where maybe you have some expectations of leaders that don't line up. You're like, oh, maybe I should ask questions about that or take it off of my list as something. Like if you know, there's an expectation, like this, this person has to be like the smartest person in the room. Just, you should just leave. <laughs> you should just leave now because that's just not the case. Well, Mike, if he's up here, then maybe he is. But if I'm preaching up here and that's your expectation, then, then you're going to be disappointed on a weekly basis. Paul writes this letter according to the closing verses that we read as a reminder of how the church is supposed to act. He goes, hey, look, I want to come to you. My desire is to be with you. But until I can get there, here's a letter of what the church should be doing. Oh, and by the way, all these false teachers that we talked about in chapters 1 and 2, all the things that are happening, the leadership that's going to write the, the ship, this is what they ought to look like. So live this out and walk this out and hold each other accountable. The leaders of this church, we desire that you hold us accountable. We teach that in our membership class. If you hear something from this pulpit that does not line up with this, it's on you to come talk to us and go, what did you mean by this? Because that's not what I see in the Bible. It's not like disrupting unity or anything. Like don't stand up in the middle of service and like be crazy about it. But, but that's part of our transparency up here, and that's part of the reason why we believe in this congregational sort of thing. Where we're, we're all members of the church under his authority and leadership. You are responsible for what you hear. At the end of the day, as I said, there's no perfect leader, and there's no perfect church, and we demonstrate that every day. Right? But there are people, there are people who desire to follow after the Lord as best they can, as best as we are able in order to see his church, his bride, as healthy and as faithful as it can be. So I'm going to leave it there. I think I gave you enough. Hopefully you have enough written down in your paper to go. I'm going to take this home and I'm going to do a little personal Study time with First Timothy chapter 3. When you look at that initially, you're like, well, what are you going to do with that? How are you going to preach off of that list? That's mine. Like, what am I going to do? It's just a list. What am I doing with the list? Well, I'm going to put it back on you. You take that list, as I have done this week, and examine your heart and see where you need to grow and mature. Not because you're desiring leadership, or maybe you are, but because you desire to live a life pleasing to Christ. And everything on that list outside of the teaching aspect, is going to help you live a life pleasing to Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your mercy and your grace that's new every morning. Father, thank you that you, you show us what we need in the leaders of your church. God, help us not to have unrealistic expectations of church leaders. And as church leaders, Lord, help us not to have unrealistic expectations of those that we're called to shepherd. God, we're all broken, sinful, yet redeemed people who desire to live lives pleasing to you. So I pray that this week, each one of us would come face to face with the reality of needing to grow and mature to pursue the things of you, God. 
Help us to do that honestly. Help us to do it faithfully. Help us to do it with great joy and satisfaction in you, Christ. Well, we love you so much. Thank you for being the perfect leader whom we can follow with confidence and expectation. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.